This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hi, I'm Shirad Kudu. This is 5.08 and you're listening to the evening edition. Uh, and today we're going to get into a very interesting topic because in many ways we've talked about Chinese New Villages uh, on several occasions on the show. Uh, but this time around, it has to do with the fact that there's a possibility of listing it with the uh, with UNESCO's rather World Heritage Site uh, Initiative. This was mentioned by uh, Housing and Local Government Minister Nga Kuo-ming, uh, when he announced last year that seven villages in the nation were selected for such a listing. Now, the the history of the new villages, I can briefly mention it. It's quite simple. It really is a product of uh, the Second World War. Kind of aftermath of the war, there was tensions between the Communist Party of Malaya that actually participated in the liberation of Malaya from Japanese control. Um, you know, started in an insurgency. This, of course, depending on how you read history, could have been or would uh, seen as being having been precipitated by certain actions by the British government, uh, the British colonial government. Now, what they did essentially was to um, what is called historically hamleting, creating villages in which people are corralled. There's barbell placed uh, around it and so cutting villages off from um, the so-called insurgents and, and therefore uh, attempting to starve the insurgency of its relationship to the general population. Now, if you think this kind of history is l- largely forgotten and irrelevant to most Malaysians, you're wrong, because some people took exception to this idea, with quite a number coming out to protest such a, a recognition of the Chinese New Village history uh, through a UNESCO listing. We had Basatu Youth Chief Wan Faisal Wan Ahmad Kamal, you know, questioning the need to commemorate remnants of the country's war against communists. Remember, the New Villages themselves weren't communist villages. They were villages of uh, Chinese population, not just Chinese, because sometimes it's Orang Asli and, and other people as well. Uh, but it's definitely from that time. Also, Amno's uh, Secretary General, uh, Ashraf Wajidi Dusuki, came out to say that uh, such uh, status, that is the UNESCO World Heritage Site status, would give recognition to the Chinese as the original inhabitants of the land, thus challenging the status of Bumiputra Malays. A curious one because um, it clearly is a history that only begins around the Second World War. Whatever it is, uh, tell us what you think. Uh, Do you think a World Heritage designation will bring value to Chinese new villages? What other heritage sites do you think should be recognized? You can call 7733-2900. You can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. BFM 89.9, the business station. It's 5.13. You're listening to the Evening Edition. I'm Sherrod Kutten. We're beginning the hour with a discussion of Chinese New Villages, uh, the proposed uh, listing with UNESCO's World Heritage Sites, and also a bit about the pushback, because the pushback is largely political, and, and that's really a bigger story. But we want to get into something of the sense of why it is a UNESCO World Heritage Site listing might be beneficial or not 
to uh, the efforts of many to recognize and to memorialize this particular history. Now, on the line we have with us today is Associate Professor Dr. Keith Tan K. Hin. He's from the School of Architecture at Taylor's University. Welcome to the show, Keith. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, it's uh, wonderful to have you back. Uh, let's let's get into it, right? So this bid uh, to nominate the Chinese New Villages as a UNESCO World Heritage Site has generated both support and resistance. I mean, from your perspective, what stands out most in this discourse? Well, I think the Minister of Housing and Local Government put it in a quite a responsible way. He mentioned that the nomination of these villages to UNESCO should not be seen as a zero-sum game. UNESCO listing is it's not like a club, right? It's not like a club with limited membership where one site's inclusion removes someone else's ability to also be listed. So unfortunately, I think a polemic surrounding the proposal shows that culture is often unfortunately used as a divisive political tool. So uh, I just want to just, before we get into the, the, the subject matter proper, I just want to carry on this conversation a little more by talking about the way in which some of this debate, let's not even call it a discourse, I mean, some of this debate and some of the rhetoric and the, the polemics, as you put it, um, center around the ability of the UN, uh, UNESCO's recognition to change the national narrative. And some even using the term ethnocide to describe the consequences of such a listing. Can a listing, in your personal professional opinion, dramatically change the national narrative? Perhaps to, to respond to that, uh, we can talk about why the sites are worth preserving, and then I'll come to the national narrative. Um, there are actually three types of new villages in Malaysia, and, and they're all located in the peninsula. And the term new village is actually not Chinese new village originally, it's actually new village. So I think that touches on the national narrative. So we've got the emergency new village, we've got the adopted new village, and we've also got the post-emergency new village. So that, that historical term, new village, refers to Malaya as a location and, and not about ethnicity. So for listeners who might be unaware, the first two, the emergency new village and the adopted new village, they were direct products of the Briggs plan, which was drawn up by General Sir Harold Briggs in the early stages of the communist emergency, so 1948 to 1960. They're actually an example of dark history, because they were products of forced resettlement of people from the jungle fringes to fortified zones, yeah, where the government could keep an eye on them to prevent them from becoming communist sympathizers. We've also got post-emergency new villages, and these are mostly squatter resettlement townships, built for similar purposes after the formation of Malaysia, but without the original barbed wire or guard posts. So, so the issue here is that uh, many of these were originally granted on leasehold terms, and some have been later converted to freehold status. Now, that was also similarly politicized by some critics, that, that movement from leasehold to freehold. Um, if we're talking about the national narrative, what stands out here is that this uh, strategy, which was actually used earlier by the British in the Boer Wars in South Africa, and also by the US and South Vietnam in the Vietnam War in the 60s, um, it only really succeeded in Malaysia this idea of creating a new sustainable way of life for landless squatters. So when they did it in South Vietnam, it was a horrible failure. Um, there were a lot of pushback, you have all, all the violence, all the killing. And when you're the Boer Wars, the joke, it's not a joke really, but the issue about where did concentration camps start and concentration camps actually started in South Africa by the British. So when we speak of new villages, their origin was actually, if you want to view it negatively, a concentration camp. But positively, they provided schools, they provide small plots of agricultural land, residential, institutional, recreational spaces. And this was for around half a million vulnerable people. So their survival over a few generations 
now makes them worth not perhaps preserving because that implies keeping everything unchanged, but maybe conserving because that implies supporting and nurturing a sustainable way of life. Keith, you mentioned dark history and, you know, many yeah. nations, uh, many nation states have dark histories uh, and you, you know, note the displacement of uh, populations, uh, you know, with the presumption that they were protecting them from the communist insurgency, whatever you might feel about that history, um, you know, why is it important for uh, a nation to collectively remember the mistakes they made or the kind of trade-offs they made that were harmful or hurtful or, uh, or in, in some countries, and you mentioned a couple of, were actually destructive of, uh, of communities? Why is that history better preserved than it is erased? Well, I think the issue here is that you know, in Malaysia, we talk a lot about sensitive issues. And, and in the old days, we will always say, oh, don't talk about that. That's a sensitive issue. So if you have so many sensitive issues that you keep sweeping under the carpet, then eventually you get a huge bulge under your carpet in the corner of a room, which is in itself unhealthy. Um, I'll give an example of that. Uh, I, I love Vietnam. I've been to Vietnam several times. And one of the times I went there, uh, I went to some place in um, Da Nang, if I remember right. And it was a cafe called the Demilitarized Zone. The cafe was actually called the DMZ. And in that cafe, everyone was dressed up as soldiers, the waiters and the waitresses. And they had photographs of, of war scenes, um, including quite horrific ones, actually, in a restaurant. And I thought, gosh, this is so unusual because these are people who one generation ago were, were killing themselves. And now they've got a themed cafe talking about it. And in a way, I suppose if it helps people heal, that, that's a good thing. Um, I think where the new villages are concerned, the negative history was actually limited in the sense that they were not set up to kill people, to, to make that clear difference. They were set up to protect people. Now, whether or not the people at the time wanted protection is another question, but they were set up to protect people and they've become popular places to live later. So I think the issue now about the village listing is, does it benefit the population and the country? And if the answer is yes, then uh, people should support that. You know, well-meaning people should support that. And if the answer is no, then they shouldn't. So, so I think then the question is, 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 is listing a good thing for both the people in the villages and, and the country as a whole? So maybe it's time to turn to exactly that process of listing and you know what goes into it. What does it take for a site to be designated as a UNESCO World Heritage Site? Can you walk us through some of the key, key, uh, key criteria and assessment processes involved? Sure. Um, there are essentially two categories of UNESCO listing. There's cultural heritage and there's also natural heritage. Although cultural heritage also involves tangible and intangible elements. So typically a cultural heritage site should have outstanding universal value or at least represent a unique cultural tradition worth conserving. So often the public equates this to areas of great size or great beauty, like the Grand Canyon or the Egyptian pyramids. But actually some quite mundane sites have also been granted this status. Now this includes abandoned industrial zones in the UK, for example, because they represent the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. Other issue with UNESCO is that national governments must be willing to nominate their sites. So interest by the public or NGOs alone is not enough. So for example, um, recently, hawker food in Singapore was granted UNESCO intangible heritage status back in 2020. So this was explained as partially due to the government directed hawker center system, which makes the cuisine easily accessible to anyone across many locations throughout Singapore. 
So most people, including Singaporeans, admit that Malaysian hawker food is superior, and in some cases, much superior. But getting the good examples here requires a more personal journey. You need to ask your uncle, you need to, you know, check the bloggers and so on. But in Singapore, you just go to Hawker Centre and it's available everywhere. So when it comes to the idea of how do you list, uh, it's got to be nominated essentially by the government at the top level. It's got to be supported by the property owners and so on and so forth. And usually in most countries, NGOs get involved. But without the government's buy-in, uh, you cannot get anything listed by UNESCO. Can you explain to us why that is so? Why is government so important in this process? Uh, because UNESCO deals at a government level. It's, it's a United Nations body. So it deals at the, with the government level. And, and essentially, that's how it works. Because contributions to UNESCO, contributions to UNESCO budget are by governments. Okay, so we have, in fact, in, in this current situation, uh, both uh, supporters and detractors coming from parties involved in the same government, right? <laughs> Actually, parties, mm -hmm. uh, AMNO and yeah. the DAP are both part of the unity government. But on this question, they're not showing much unity. So, uh, but if they were to, at some point, have a consensus on this, what kind of tangible benefits would such a listing bring? Sure, okay. Well, UNESCO listing is actually a double-edged sword. Uh, UNESCO actually has quite a small budget. We were talking about budget earlier. So it's typically less than 2 billion US dollars uh, per, per year. But this covers over a thousand sites worldwide. And of course, most of that goes into administrative costs. Um, it actually sets many rather strict criteria to be followed to maintain a listing in the long run. So these typically involve preventing physical changes in a core zone and a buffer zone that are seen as detrimental to the status of a location. So in Malaysia, it's well known in Georgetown and Malacca, for example, uh, those restrictions involve height restrictions on new buildings, materials restrictions, and signage guidelines, amongst several other things. So in return for these efforts, listing of sites that have tourism potential often help to significantly realize that potential. But for some sites which are of greater interest merely to academics and researchers, actually that's actually very little monetary benefit. Um, but I'll come to the non-monetary benefit. So many heritage sites actually do quite well from tourism without listing. Um, I'll come to the non-monetary benefit after this. Um, some even refuse to be listed, to be honest, uh, because they fear that listing will prevent them from making changes to their monuments. So for example, several major Balinese temples uh, they decline nomination because they fear that it would prevent renovation or expansion, which they feel is part of their living culture. So their concern is, if I list my building under UNESCO, well, I can't renovate it. And if I can't renovate it, it stops being alive or it becomes a glorified you know, tourist attraction preserved. So any attempt to list the new villages here must be supportive of the needs of the nearly one million people who still live in, uh, in these places. So where we talk of benefits, typically... They are monetary is the obvious if the place has tourism potential. And if it doesn't, then it's about uh, skill sets. It's about expertise. It's about advisories and so on. But ultimately, the idea that is there something worth conserving? Uh, because one thing that the new villagers uh, have a problem with here is uh, out-migration. So they, at the peak, there were about one and a half million people living there. Now it's down to less than a million because of out-migration. When they started, it was about half a million. So you, you've got an almost perfect bell curve uh, occurring. You know, you've, you've started with half a million, you peak at one and a half million, now you, you're down to just under a million. Um, do you want or do we want to preserve these places as, 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 as pleasant places to live? And what do they have to contribute to, to the country? They, they actually have quite an, a lot of things to, to contribute. Um, for example, I just mentioned, there are about 450 new villages in Malaysia at the moment. 
if, if we do list anything here, it will probably be a listing of one or two examples or exemplars of this type. They'll probably showcase the significance of the villages uh, to the cultural diversity of Malaysia and the beginnings of urbanization in the country. So the new villages, um, when you think of it, they contribute greatly still to the agricultural output of Malaysia. Um, and when UNESCO listed Georgetown and Malacca, it really helped to increase interest in sustainable cities here. So if we list one or two new villages, it could uh, increase interest in sustainable villages, and that would itself be worthy of uh, nation-building contribution. Right. Keith, I mean, you're from the School of Architecture. Is there anything unique in the architectural heritage or the kind of built solutions that the people of the new villages created in their time? Okay, so in the, the, the emergency new village, uh, the, the buildings were essentially built by the state. So when the population was relocated, they were all given standardized housing. Now that, uh, and that standardized housing was either fully timber or in some locations, half brick, half timber. So is it unique? Well, it is a product of its time. Um, and actually it was not built by the residents themselves. It was provided for them. Um, of course, most have been highly renovated since then. So if the new villages were to be listed, it's probably not for the buildings. It is probably for the system, similar to the uh, UNESCO uh, food, food court thing in, in Singapore. Because when we speak of a concentration camp, which is how the new villages started, we have very few examples of a concentration camp where people choose to live. They elect to live there. They want to live there. They like it. Um, so it's perhaps, I mean, nomenclature. I mean, if you say concentration camp, it sounds quite horrible. But if you say a new village, it, it sounds actually quite nice. And the idea that these people were, these were these were squatters, essentially. They were squatters, derelict squatters, who didn't have land. So they were very vulnerable. And the government gave them land, leasehold, but now partially freehold, gave them property and so on and so forth, and, and, and gave them a means to have livelihood. So these were sustainable villages. And I think that word sustainability is quite a buzzword today uh, in today's context. So I think when we speak of their listing, it will not be for purely architectural reasons because the buildings are not particularly unique, to be quite honest, but this delivery system, the, the reach of the villagers and what they did for the people and, and how they helped to, for example, fend off communism in this part of the world uh, was very successful. Remember that the emergency occurred at a time when Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia all became communists, uh, you know, the American domino theory. And this was considered a bulwark against that and, and a very successful one. So, so that's perhaps why uh, they might deserve this thing. Okay, Keith, uh, in your personal opinion, uh, we have about a minute left, but in your personal opinion, do you think that uh, the, the sustainability of these spaces needs a UNESCO a World Heritage uh, stamp on it? Very good question. It really will depend on what you mean by needs. I think in most societies, unless you're very, very poor, your needs are settled. It's what you want. Right. So I think if you ask, do the UNESCO, do the new villages need UNESCO listing? The answer is no, they don't. Do they deserve it? The answer is they might deserve it in some cases. Is it good for the country? Probably it's good for the country, right? In, in the sense that if you are seen to celebrate culture, celebrate diversity, celebrate the ability to monetize your heritage assets, your ability to um, offer different parts of development or different a bit, uh, avenues of development to a diverse set of situations, 
it's a very good thing. And so I think uh, in that sense, the answer is yes, but I, I won't call it a need, but it's a, what in, in investment terms is perhaps a low hanging fruit. Although the road to listing is actually quite difficult because UNESCO does put a lot of regulations in place and people have to be willing to accept that. And there's a lot of uh, inspections as well. It's not you get it once and that's forever. It's, uh, it's a bit like academic accreditation, to be honest. You need to <laughs> keep reporting to them. Yeah. Thank you so much, Keith, uh, for that very insightful very uh, conversation about the new village and prospects for a UNESCO listing. That was Associate Professor Keith Tan from the School of Architecture at Taylor's University. We're talking about the World Heritage designation for new villages, what do you think about it? Remember, you can call us double seven double three two nine hundred. You can WhatsApp us at zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine or tweet us at BFM Radio. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.